This is the new Criterion. I'm James Pinero, Executive Editor. From Permanent Things, Russell Kirk's Centenary, a symposium on the conservative thinkers' enduring ideas, this is my presentation on the ghosts of Russell Kirk. Versions of this presentation and others appear in the January 2019 issue of the new Criterion. So my topic is the fiction of Russell Kirk, and in particular, his ghostly tales. Uh, Russell Kirk wrote three novels and 22 short stories. I will be talking about his first novel, a bestseller, which is The Old House of Fear, and uh, two of his very early short stories from the 1950s. The title of my talk is The Ghosts of Russell Kirk, or The Revenant. <laughs> the subject of ghosts, both their literary and spectral forms, was a lifelong fascination for Russell Kirk. He was a scholar of speculative fiction, also called genre fiction. These days, stories of horror and the supernatural are often disparaged against the quality literature of modern realism. Yet Kirk saw realism as dreary baggage and the art of depicting nature as if seen by toads. <laughs> For a, quote, writer who struggles to express moral truth, wrote Kirk, realism has become, in our time, a dead-end street. <laughs> so Kirk appreciated what he called the fearful joy of ghostly tales. Such tales form their own literary tradition, one that he traced from Horace Walpole to H.P. Hartley. Kirk was sure to distinguish these ghost stories from the more recent flood of scientific and futuristic fantasies, which he called banal and meaningless. Quote, for symbol and allegory, he wrote, the shadow world is a far better realm than the hard, false realism of science fiction. Kirk did not fear ghosts. He feared the death of ghosts and their afterlife in myths and tales. In his own scholarship and writing, he sought to their revival. As he studiously wrote in a cautionary note on the ghostly tale, an essay he first published in The Critic in spring 1962, the supernatural has attracted writers of genius or high talent, Defoe, Scott, Coleridge, Stevenson, Hoffman, Maupassant, Kipling, Hawthorne, Poe, Henry James, F. Marion Crawford, Edith Wharton, and those whose achievement lie principally in this dark field, among them M.R. James, Algernon Blackwood, Meade Faulkner, Sheridan Le Feno, and Arthur Macon. Many of the best are by such poets and critics, says Walter de la Mer, A.C. Benson, and Quiller Cooch. Theirs are no Grub Street names. Incredibly, <laughs> as Kirk went on, since most modern men have ceased to recognize their own souls, the spectral tale has been out of fashion, especially in America. Kirk called himself the last remaining master of ghostly stories, something he lamented as a decayed art. Still, unfashionable as they may be, it did not mean that ghost stories went unread. Beneath our rationalist feet, as Kirk well knew, there remains haunted ground. And in fact, Kirk's own supernatural fiction brought him widespread popular success. He began by publishing ghostly tales in the early 1950s in small periodicals, such as World Review, Queen's Quarterly, the London Mystery Magazine, Fantasy and Science Fiction, and Southwest Review. 
Many of these stories have now been anthologized several times over. His thriller of a novel of 1961, The Old House of Fear, became a surprise bestseller. Kirk said it outsold all of his other books. Its royalties provided some financial buoyancy to the Kirk family for some years after publication. These literary achievements form their own creative legacy, one not necessarily advantaged by Kirk's more prominent political associations. Yet they were all of a piece. The writing quality and studied interest of this ghostly fiction were not ancillary to his conservative mind, but central to his Gothic sensibility. Quoting Edmund Burke, Kirk wrote, art is man's nature, and ghost stories were Kirk's nature. The Shirley Sullen Bell, Kirk's short story of 1950, first published in the London, Literary, London Mystery Magazine, sounds a tone that resonates through much of his fiction. Kirk takes his title from Shakespeare's sonnet 71. No longer mourn for me when I am dead, than you shall hear the Shirley Sullen Bell. Give warning to the world that I am fled from this vile world with vilest worms to dwell. The story lends its title to his <coughs> first story collection, published by Fleet in 62, which I have here. And I'm going to describe these stories in brief, so I hope you'll then pick up the collection yourself. The story opens in the rubble of St. Louis, where they have pounded the old town into dust. Against this backdrop of so-called urban renewal, we read, To the modern politician and planner, men are the flies of a summer, oblivious to their, of their past, reckless of their future. A character named Frank Loring is visiting, reluctantly, the home of a professor, Godfrey Schumacher. The professor's wife, the former man, Nancy Burrell, is an old flame. Loring is a self-admitted reactionary, not yet 40. Ecclesiastes was Bible enough for him. Yesterday's sun had been warmer than today's. Schumacher, in contrast, complacent positivist. But Loring now finds the professor wrapped up in a startling blend of psychiatry and quasi-yoga, spites with something near to necromancy and perhaps a dash of Madame Blavatsky. <laughs> Since Schumacher is a late disciple of the mechanists, what explains his new philosophy? Well, Lorian admits, the line of demarcation between the two cults perhaps was no more difficult to cross than the boundary between fascism and communism. Schumacher has taken up an interest in mysticism, he claims, in order to help his ailing wife, who has become a neurotic suffering from dreadful sights. But this Godfrey is playing God. He wants to possess me, absorb me, lose me in himself, Nancy confides to Loring. As Schumacher pours another cup of coffee, he also pours out his strong philosophy. Restraint is for spiritual weaklings. Strength is everything upon the physical plane, and that's just as true really upon the spiritual, the moral plane. Strength and appetite are the only tests. You'll admit that soon enough, Loring. Walking home through the district of ruined and ruinous old houses, Loring finds he is followed by a hulking figure, slipping now and again into deep shadow. After another visit, the figure follows him again. This time, Loring collapses in a ruined alley, only to see a spectral face taunting him from an abandoned window. Believing there was something wrong with the coffee, Loring barely makes it to the police station. When the authorities go back to investigate the Schumachers, they find Nancy dead of heart failure 
and Godfrey shot by his own hand. Nancy and Loring had been poisoned, yet our final understanding of Godfrey's drug was little better than approximation. In a cautionary note on the ghostly tale, Kirk writes, Tenebrae form part of the nature of things, nor should we complain, for without darkness there cannot be light. Kirk's 1957 story, Ex Tenebris, first published in Queen's Quarterly, takes on slum clearance front and center. The setting has been relocated to the fading English farm village of Low Wentford and its supposed replacement by the new council housing scheme of Gorst. Mrs. Oliver is a holdout in the old town. Even though her windows were too small and her ceilings lower than regulations, she simply wants to train rose bushes against the old walls and spade her own little garden. She also has little interest in Gorst, which boasts six cinemas but no churches, and was a jerry-built desolation of concrete roadways designed to make it difficult for people to get about on foot. Well, S.G.W. Barner, which sounds like Burner, planning officer, knows better and has different ideas for Mrs. Oliver. She would be served by a compulsory purchase order before long and would be moved to Gorscht where she belonged. A thick-chested hairy man, rather like a large earnest ape, that's, I love that description, Barner thinks he understands all he needs to know about the future. He was convinced that the agriculture, this is a quote, he was convinced that the agricultural laborer ought to be liquidated altogether. And why not? Advanced planning within a few years surely would liberate progressive societies from dependence upon old-fashioned farming. He disliked the whole notion of agriculture with its rude earthiness, its reactionary views of life and labor, its subservience to tradition. He also disliked Low Wentford, which he believed served as an obsolete fragment of a repudiated social order. Therefore, it must be effaced. Ruins are reminiscent of the past, and the past is a dead hand impeding progressive planning. Well, Mrs. Oliver is frightened of Barner, who seems more unchristian than any Indian, worshipping his maps. So she seeks refuge in conversation with an Abner Hargreaves, the vicar of Low Wentford's old church. Problem is, this church has been long abandoned. When Barner goes to investigate, he enters into an argument with the spectral vicar, who tells him, Cursed is he that smiteth his neighbor secretly. Well, Barner says, Individual preferences often must be subordinated to communal efficiency. The vicar responds, I speak not simply of women inclination, but of the memories of childhood and girlhood, the pieties that cling to our heart, however desolated. Well, just then, as Barner feels the vicar's hand on his neck, the roof of the north porch fell upon him. A new planning officer abandons the Gorsh scheme and recommends a plan of de-concentration. Mrs. Oliver can stay in her cottage, where she weeds her garden and bakes her scones and often sweeps the gravestones clean. Oh. Reviewing Kirk's first collection of stories, Virginia Kirkus's service, what we know now as Kirkus, took note of how the ghosts of Kirk's tales generally work for the good to defeat the modern evils of city planners, hoodlums, or census takers. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, Kirkus continued, 
There is perhaps too much common sense reality in these tales for them to be truly terrifying. Well, set in the haunted small aisles of the Scottish Hebrides, the old house of fear, Kirk's first novel quickly does away with terra cognita for a landscape charged with dark spirits. Duncan MacAskaval is an Andrew Carnegie-like industrialist who wants to return to his ancestral Scottish home. Look at it all, he says of his ironworks. I made it. And what has it given me? Two coronary fits. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. He taps Hugh Logan to travel to Carnglass, where the old lady of the McCaskill clan still lives, in order to purchase the island and its castle called the Old House of Fear. The name is Gaelic, we learn, and fear means man, just as Carnglass means gray stone. The first half of the book concerns Logan's effort to get on island. Many conspire to keep him away. We will also learn about the lingering old superstitions of this remote land. Quote, it has been said that to preach the Gospels among the Pequots or Narragansett is a facile undertaking by the side of any endeavor to redeem from heathen error these denizens of the furthermost Hebrides the mainland seems to want to avoid. Kirk's writing here is possessed of a specific beauty. Having earned his Doctor of Letters from the University of St. Andrews, the only American at the time to do so, he luxuriates in the maritime Scottish scenery. Just consider this following passage that I selected out. At six o'clock, the Loch Ness steamed away from the pier towards the Sound of Mool. They crossed the Firth of Lorne, and then, to the south, they skirted the gray, rocky mass of Mool, while the wild shores of Morven frowned upon them from the north. Several islanders were among the passengers, and for the first time in years, Logan heard the Gaelic spoken naturally, that beautiful singing Gaelic of the Hebrides. It went with the cliffs, the sea rocks, the ruined strongholds of Mule and Morven, the damp air, the whitewashed lonely cottages by the deep and smoothly sinister sea. When Logan makes landfall, he meets Mary McCaskill, a red-haired ingenue and soon-to-be love interest. They pretend to be betrothed in order to get past a Dr. Edmund Jackman, a man, we learn, who knows all about the occult. He has just come back from a trip to Romania. Well, this guru figure has taken over the old house and entranced the old lady. Turns out he is also a communist agent, seeking to use Carnglass as a forward base of operations to disrupt advanced Atlantic defenses. Working with a henchman named Royal, the humanitarian with the guillotine, Dr. Jackman uses sham bogles to frighten old women. Says Logan, but when you play with things from the abyss, you run risks. In this dead island of Carnglass, all around us, things are ready to stir, if they're called. Well, fed on fantasies of one sort or another, Jackman says of Mary, the legends of Carnglass are real. Mary, indeed, knows the old Pictish hidey holes on the island. She helps Logan escape and summons her relatives from Daldor, the island next door. While some of the island's apparitions prove to be false, a happy warrior named Dumb Angus dons the skin of a sheep's head to frighten Jackman, the legends of Carnglass also come true. Jackman is shown to be a demon, the fear gower, the goat man, and he saw all things past, present, and future through his third eye. Far from being saved by the light of day, only Mary's belief in these same dark legends preserves the island from Jackman's boot. 
In the last year of his life, Kirk spoke, spoke about ghosts at length from his ancestral home on Piety Hill. Before he read one of his ghost stories, he elaborated on what he called the true narration of the ghosts in his life and the life of his family. Kirk's ancestors were followers of the mystical Lutheran theologian Emanuel Swedenborg, a New York lumberman from the burned-over country of the Finger Lakes, Kirk's great-grandfather came for the trees of northern Michigan and brought Swedenborgism with him, building a spiritualist church across the street from his settlement in Mecosta. After the church burned of mysterious circumstances, says uh, Russell Kirk, the family conducted seances in their own home. My great-aunt Norma told tales of those days, Kirk said. A rocking chair levitated towards the ceiling. A great round mahogany table floated up. Before the old house burned in 1975, Kirk says he observed an increase in its spiritual activity. Sleeping on the parlor sofa, aged eight or nine, he remembers seeing two fig uh, figures looking back at him through the bay window one winter's night. They left no footprints in the snow. Years later, he learned about Aunt Faye seeing similar figures whom she would play with. And Kirk's eldest daughter, Monica, also saw these men. Three generations had some sort of experience, Kirk concluded, one of the more pleasant ghost stories of the house. Mine was not an enlightenment mind, Kirk famously said of himself. It was a gothic mind, medieval in its temper and structure. I did not love cold harmony and perfect regularity of organization. What I sought was variety, mystery, tradition, the venerable, the awful. Directed not by ideology, but rather a prudential anti-ideology, or disposition, Kirk's pathways were sinuous. There was no single key or one access point or unobstructed promontory to give way to his worldview. Instead, he left many clues, often medieval in temper and structure. And for this, we are fortunate. He saw the modern age in a way with the time travelers remove. He surveyed the world with idiosyncratic fascination, looking for lost connections between the timely and the timeless, the past, the present, and the future. In his writing, he was his own poltergeister, rattling spirit, making critical noise to remind us of lost ties and the subterranean spirits of culture, just below the rubble at our feet and the theories in our heads. With his own third eye, he saw through the many false faiths of the modern age. The primary error of the Enlightenment, he wrote, was the notion that dissolving old faiths, creeds, and loyalties would lead to a universal sweet rationalism but deprive man of St. Salvador, and he will seek, at best, St. Science. <laughs> That's why fruitful inquests might still be made into Kirk's dim views of post-war urban planning, for example, or the entrancing flicker of information technology, just two areas of many where he was remarkably far-sighted. The more we look to the variety, mystery, tradition, the venerable, the awful of his life and work, the better we appreciate his Gothic form of conservative mind. He believed in ghosts. He believed in people who believed in ghosts. He believed in people who believed in the stories of ghosts. Whether ghosts were objective or subjective phenomena, whether they are forces of the universe of, or of the human imagination, he would not definitively say. Quote, can we imagine a human soul operating without a body, he said at the end of his life. You and I are just a collection of some electrical particles held in suspension temporarily. We aren't really solid at all. Can there be a collection of such particles in a different form that can occasionally manifest itself? Nobody knows. 
Subjective belief and objective existence were fluid dynamics in Kirk's mind. He believed in the life of the dead. He believed in the afterlife of the soul and the soul imbued in the living spirit of the culture. His beliefs still haunt us today. On the centenary of his birth today, if we have managed to conjure his legacy, then we have also summoned a revenant spirit. Thank you. <laughs> Questions? Comments? Spirits? Uh, I have a question for you. You mentioned Madame Botovsky. You think of this outbreak of spiritualism in America in the 19th century and how credulous Americans were, uh, uh, the seances and all. And I understand you, know, you referred to this kind of agnosticism about the ultimate source of this in Kirk's mind, but uh, you think there's some tension? I mean, I understand the place this plays in his larger anti-enlightenment or post-enlightenment moral imagination. But do you think there's some tension between this, the ghosts and the ghost stories and the flicker of Madame Blatovsky and Christianity? I think there's some tension because, for one, he was a convert, as we know, to yeah, Catholicism, yeah. Uh, converted at the time of his marriage in 1964. Four, I think, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think there's some ambivalence to these, this background of his, right? Yeah. The Swedenborgian background. Uh, you know, you can see in the stories, the, the fictional stories, there are many false prophets, and he kind of belittles many of the gurus out there. Mm -hmm. He belittles Madame Blavatsky. Yeah, yeah. Yet at the same time describes there being seances in his own house. So there's a conflict there that I'm not sure he yeah. fully figured out. Mm -hmm. really. That's quite interesting. Yeah. 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 Roger, I wonder if part of it might just be some rather usual impression surviving from childhood of things he didn't quite understand. I, I can confirm that he, he, did, he did believe in ghosts. It was, that was not a literary pose. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, was, he knew how to do the tarot card. Yes. But he, was, he, he would refuse to do it because they'd come true often enough right. to where he didn't, didn't want to fool with that. Do you know if he happened to have had any Congress with Christine Ford? <laughs> no, but I, you're, you're, that's an important point to make because I think when I first approached these stories, I assumed he was using ghosts purely symbolically. They represented uh, the haunting of our culture. There was something he was trying to make a point with them. Um, I worked with Bill Buckley on his own fiction. I think for Bill, the fiction was, for one thing, kind of a distraction from just living in Switzerland for the winter, but also, and fun. But also, he wanted to kind of make a point. He wanted to, you know, create a hero based on, modeled on himself that would kind of be a, a kind of James Bond-like figure. It was quite removed, I think, from who Bill was in, in many ways, that fiction. This fiction seemed much more internal to who Kirk was. Mm. And I think from our conversations last night, it sounded like mm. there was a time that he kind of envisioned himself being a literary writer before mm. he became uh, the person we know as Kirk. Mm. There's a very interesting story in uh, the new modern age. Uh, Scott Bouchamp, is mm -hmm. that his name? That's right. On forms of horror. And uh, for Kirk, the horror was indicating the existence of another world. The, the second kind of horror is a world without any kind of spiritual redemption, according to this piece. And, uh, and he gives the example of the movie The Thing, where, where nature just comes and is annihilating. 
Um, I thought that that was a very revealing and interesting essay, and it, it touches on the point that for, for Kirk, I think uh, these stories were serious um, and part of his broader vision. And, you know, it does, it is consonant with his uh, notion of, of the mystery of life and the fact that one of the mistakes we make um, as human beings is to be overconfident about that which we know. And that overconfidence is itself destructive because it makes us quite easy with commanding third parties mm. and maybe flopping off the offending limb on the Procrustean bed. Right. Yeah. Uh, James, I wanted to ask you, um, does uh, Kirk talk at all in what you've looked at from his uh, supernatural fiction and, and writing about supernatural fiction uh, does he have any interest in H.P. Lovecraft? It was an interesting omission from your list of uh, ghostly tale authors. Lovecraft is not, of course, an author of ghostly tales, but he's someone who is very much um, – he has his own essay on, on the nature of supernatural fiction in which he cites many of the same figures that Russell yeah, Kirk cites. Yeah, his interest in Lovecraft's name did not appear in that very lengthy list. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't see why. I mean I think Kirk's a better writer than Lovecraft maybe. Uh, he didn't want to draw on a bad example. I don't know. Well, I mentioned it perhaps in part in, in context of the essay that uh, Brian mentioned because Lovecraft, like uh, the movie The Thing, fits into this um, sort of horror of nihilism that's distinct from the horror of, of the presence that uh, Russell Kirk represents. Well, thank you, James. Excellent. That makes me want to go back and read some of those old stories. Do. Yeah. Of course, Shakespeare's full of this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Visions, spirits, ghosts, that sort of thing. Especially in his Scottish tales, um, and uh, of course Russell Kirk loved Shakespeare. And he loved. He liked to quote. I've I read uh, Kirk, and he's quoted this piece from Shakespeare more than once. It's from Henry the Fourth, Owen Glendower. I can call spirits from mm -hmm. the vastly deep. Mm -hmm. uh, Henry the Fourth, by so can I, or so can any man. Will they come when you do call them? <laughs> <laughs> well, Kirk called Ireland the most haunted land, and he considered Scotland the second most haunted. Um, but he pointed out there, there are ghosts in Italy, often the, the witch, the Straga, and there, they, and there are ghosts in his own town in Macosta. So I think he, he looked for them everywhere, really. And he saw how ghost stories could, were universal and went back to ancient times, not even just Shakespeare, but ancient writing. So this was not a disenchanted world for Russell Kirk. Uh, Fortunately, it was not. <laughs> <laughs> Could I just add a bit of color? Uh, just to, uh, um, He would keep audiences of young people enthralled. And so, you know, weekend seminars or summer schools, uh, you'd have your regular regimen, hmm. but Dr. Kirk could always be counted on to have a second late night session to tell ghost stories and he would be he would not only tell them but would have um, all sorts of tricks to mm -hmm. like a broom that would suddenly uh, uh, hit upon the floor like a gunshot you know, sort of <laughs> well he, he said that I, I didn't know him personally but he, he said that he most people 3am is when their energies are at their lowest uh, spiritual energies for him 3am they were at the highest <laughs> and so he would often work through the whole night, and he said for five percent of humanity that's the case. So he, I guess, he was a night owl, but even more than that, he was connecting with something that maybe I'm just too tired to connect with. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Well, um, as Jim mentioned, Shakespeare, as Prospero said at the end of the uh, 
Tempest, our revels now are ended. Thank you all for coming. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Thank 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 you